You are listening to a message from Thrive Community Church, a church located in Southwest Florida. For more info, visit us at thrive-fl.org. We're highlighting, again, Simply Jesus, where the Gospel of Mark is the simplest of all the four Gospels and presents Jesus. And the the main question that happens in the first eight chapters of the, the Gospel of Mark is, who is this? Who is this guy? Who is this who can uh, calm the winds and the sea? Who is this who can speak and his word is accomplished? Who is this who can cast out demons? Who is this who can heal? Who has this who has authority to forgive sins? We've answered all those questions all along in the different stories. He's always being challenged along Today is a bit different. He's being challenged in a different way. The question that's really being answered today is, how do you connect with someone like this? (laughs) How do you connect with someone like this Um, who can calm the storm, who can cast out demons? And we're going to read about a remarkable encounter that Jesus had with a Gentile woman where we find out in the end how amazing Jesus is, but also how he is himself amazed at this woman. So you can follow along in Mark chapter 7. We'll read verses 24 to 30. And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, for this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. So how is it that you approach God? How is it that you connect with the divine? There have been basically two answers throughout human history to this. Uh, The first one we're not that familiar with anymore. Um, It's not part of our culture, but it's like, how do you approach the inscrutable, the divine, the omniscient, the omnipotent, the most powerful, the holiest of holy God, and... The best thing is to not try. (laughs) And if you're going to, um, you better grovel. You better find a way to appease God before you approach him. And so people over the ages and different religious traditions try to find a way to kind of bridge the gap, to make a moral effort, to um, do a sacrifice, or do something to get God to pay attention or to approach him because he was so utterly different. They saw God uh, as more of a tyrant and someone who could be very vindictive. And so it's like, yeah, it's best just to avoid. And the only time I'm doing, I'm going to have to come groveling and maybe some way have some connection. So that's one approach. The modern approach that we're very familiar with is that God is our, you know, therapist. He's the person we can talk to at any time. He's our life coach that we can go to and drop any problem on. And he's always going to be affirming, always going to be loving, always going to be um, 
at our beck and call, do whatever we want. He's there for us. And he will just lift us up and encourage us. And no matter what background, no matter who we are, he will never contradict. He will never do any of those things. So we just think we naturally have a connection to the divine. What we find out in this text is neither. This woman does not think she naturally has a connection, and she does not fear trying to bring about some connection. So we're going to actually explore these two points today, just only two. Can you believe it? Disconnection and connection. First of all, the disconnection. Mark writes this, from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon, and he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. So already last week, by the way, we were in Mark chapter 6 and the feeding of the 5,000, and we saw at the beginning of that text that already the ministry of Jesus had become so hectic that it said this, that Jesus said, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while, for many were coming and going. They had no leisure even to eat. There just was no time. There was no way to rest. They were exhausted, and Jesus said, come away. They went to the hill country, but we said last week, yes, an entire thousands thronged into the hill country, and they wanted a revolutionary, someone like a Maccabean leader who would fight And kick out the Romans who'd be like King David or Joshua or, um, well, Moses even, to fight and to bring about a revolt. And we said, yes, Jesus is a revolutionary, but not in that way at all. He feeds with bread and with his word. So last week, he couldn't get away. This week, he decides to now go to the farthest reaches, actually outside. The one time he goes outside of the traditional territory of Israel. He goes totally outside of any claim to Tyre and Sidon. As James Edwards writes in his commentary, Tyre probably represented the most extreme expression of paganism, both actually and symbolically, that a Jew could expect to encounter Tyre and Sidon is where Jezebel was from. Baal worship was big in the Old Testament. So this was not a place you'd expect Jesus to show up. But even there, it didn't work. His reputation already preceded it, and a woman comes into his house. She barges in, by the way. You know, she wasn't asked to come in. She barges in and keeps on begging. Boldly, she begs. Now, Why do I say bold? Because as a Syrophoenician just outside of Israel, Tyre and Sidon in the Lebanon coast area, she would know she was Gentile and a woman, and Jesus, a Jewish rabbi, she had no connection. She had no rights to be where she was. She had no moral status or social or religious standing to ask anything of a Jewish rabbi. Women didn't even talk to Jewish rabbis in public like this at all. And yet she's bold. James Edwards says in his commentary on this, of all the people who approach Jesus in the Gospel of Mark, this individual has the most against her from a Jewish perspective. Verse 26 reads like a crescendo of demerit. Even Levi, the tax collector, must have raised his eyebrows at this woman. And Levi, being a tax collector, was as low as you could get. 
But she, he goes like, this is lower. This is lower. She's a Gentile. She's not a Jew. She's a pagan, not a God worshiper. She's a woman and not a man. She has a daughter with an unclean spirit, which means she is unclean as well herself. In every way, she is disqualified religiously, respectability standards, everything to be in front of Jesus. In a parallel passage, by the way, in the Gospel of Matthew, shares this story as well. And there, the disciples, it says, were begging Jesus, saying, send her away. She's crying out after us. She's bugging us. She will not stop. Now, her initial boldness is not hard to understand. I think you do understand this. You know, there are some of you today who are more shy and reserved. Anybody want to admit it? Probably you won't raise your hand because you're shy and reserved. Okay, right? And then there's others like me who are kind of brash and assertive. Anybody want to admit being brash and assertive? We don't want it because you're afraid. Okay, well, I am. But there's another category of people, parents. <laughs> She's a mother. She will do anything for her daughter. Just like any parent, if I don't care what your natural disposition is, when you see your child in trouble, your child sick, your child, you know, desperate. You will do anything. You will go anywhere. You will, you will get outside of your comfort zone and get in the face of anyone and be their advocate. And you will give your very life for that child. And so we understand the boldness of this woman. She won't stop. But her initial boldness is not enough to overcome the disconnection. She's naturally disconnected. Like I said, there are all these strikes against her. There's no reason, no cultural, no social, no religious reason that she could stand before Jesus or kneel at his feet or come into that house and ask what she's asking at all. I think she's a great, uh, great illustration of our human condition. Paul in the gospel or in the letter of Colossians puts it this way. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. That's our condition. We don't have a natural connection to the divine. There is no natural situation where it's like, oh yes, of course. Too many people, I think, though, think that we do. Somehow we think that we just naturally are attuned to the divine. All we need is a, just a little fine-tuning of our situation. Just a little more knowledge might help. Just a little more um, purity in our lives will do. And then all of a sudden, everything is fine, and we can approach God because we are at one with the universe of the divine. Not according to the scriptures. We are alienated. We are separated. There's a gap. There's a disconnect. This woman can't bridge the gap with all the boldness that she has. But amazingly, counterintuitively, with the words that Jesus speaks to her, Jesus bridges that gap. There's a connection. Our second point. We're already at point two, aren't you happy? <laughs> he said to her, 
Now, you, this is where all these, there are a lot of cultural and historical uh, baggage, I guess, or background to this text. And so we're going to have to understand a little of that to get what is Jesus is saying. He said to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Now, what does that mean, right? You know, in our canine-loving society, we think oh, a dog is so cute and cuddly, and that was not the case in the first century. Most time, dogs were considered scavengers and unclean animals and kept out of the house. So this almost, and many commentators think this is just a total insult to her. He's calling her like a dog. But this is not the typical word for dog in this text. And I think that's one of the keys. This word instead is kunarion. It means puppy, little dog, a household dog. This isn't an insult, it's actually a mini parable that Jesus is telling. He's saying, you know how it works in the house? You know, the, the food is prepared, it's placed on the table, and the kids get to eat first. How many in your house the kids eat first? Or did, right? Why? Because if you wait and they're, they're going to cry, and, but the, you want them to eat first. Often it's a lot easier on everybody if the kids eat first. But the kids get to eat first. And then afterwards, after the kids are fully fed and satisfied, Jesus says, then some of the scraps may be thrown to the little dogs in the house. The puppies aren't supposed to eat before the children. <laughs> Jesus is speaking what really is a historical reality and part of God's plan of salvation. It's actually part of what Paul says in Romans chapter 1. I don't have this verse up there, but verse 16 to 17, that I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. It's a historical reality that Jesus came to Israel and he did not travel outside of this one instance. He did not travel outside of the promised land that God had given to Israel. He came for Israel, for God's people, to fulfill the promise that was given to Abraham, to fulfill the promises given to Moses and to David, to be the high priest above all high priests, to be the fulfillment of the temple, to be the fulfillment of the king and the prophet, and all of it wrapped in one, to be the sacrificial lamb, to do all of these things for the sake of God's people first, historically, in time, and then, after his death and resurrection, he proclaims, make disciples of all nations. And even when Paul went out as the disciple and apostle to the Gentiles, he went often to the synagogue first, and then to the Gentiles. This is a historical reality. And what's so intriguing is the woman doesn't debate any of this. She does not get insulted by the words of Jesus. She doesn't look at her and doesn't look to herself. She accepts the somewhat like, hey, not yet, rebuke. She doesn't challenge your words, but he, she grabs onto them and kind of uses them 
and holds Jesus accountable for what he just said. And she answers, yes, Lord, even the dogs under the table eat the crumbs that fall from the children's crumbs. In essence, she says, I get it. I'm not supposed to, to be here right now. I'm not at the table right away. I'm not worthy. I know that. But there's more than enough on the table. And by the way, while the children are eating, often crumbs fall off the table. Johnny makes a mess, doesn't he? Oh, yeah. yeah. Children make a mess. And whatever falls off the table, that's all I'm asking for at the same time. It's not going to get in the way of anything that the children actually get. They can rightfully have all they have. I just want a little crumb. That's astounding. Do you know that? What she is doing is absolutely astounding. We have nothing like this in our Western culture at all. In America, we would have heard somebody say to the words of Jesus, excuse me, rabbi, who do you think you're talking to like this, calling me a dog, telling me to wait, telling me it's not my place right now? I know my rights. I'm just as good as anyone else. You're supposed to give. Do you know what that is? It's being a bully. Boy, do we have a lot of bullies in our society. Mobs of bullies. <laughs> Political parties about bullying. Industries of bullying. Our culture is filled with bullies. And if not bullies, bargainers. That might be the, well, OK, Jesus. You might, Rabbi, you might be right, you should go first. But if you want to have any kind of influence in the Gentile world, this would be a good place to start. You can hear her, all, but she doesn't bargain. She does not go like, oh, well, but, you know, this would really help your ministry out. This is, she's not making a deal. She's not looking for a deal. So many people in our society still do that as well. Instead of bullying, they might bargain. Well, God, if, I, if you give me the answer to this, then I will. You've heard it before, haven't you? Especially when people are in desperate situations, they start bargaining with God. He's not looking for a bargainer. That's not a way of being assertive with God at all. What do you have to bargain with anyways? There is nothing you've got that isn't God's already. There's no deal you could make. You don't even need to make a deal. And the third thing she doesn't do is beguile. I'm using a B again. But she doesn't try to kind of, well, you know Jesus. Um, yeah, I'm a Gentile, but you know my uncle's cousin went to temple once. You know, she doesn't try to kind of find a way to make it seem like she should fit in. We stand up for our rights and our dignity and our own goodness, and she does nothing of the sort. What she does is she is assertive, but she doesn't assert her rights. She asserts instead her need, and she trusts in the goodness of Jesus. She's saying, I'm coming to you not on the basis of my own goodness. I'm coming on the basis of yours, Jesus. I accept your judgment. I'll take what sounds like an insult and hold you to that. Puppies under the table still find a crumb. And on the basis of your goodness as being so generous and 
all I'm looking for is such a small little morsel compared to what you can do. You know what that's called? She is a beggar. She's asking. She takes whatever he says and just asks. And Jesus turns to her and says, basically, wow, I'm amazed. Such an answer. Absolutely. The Protestant reformer Martin Luther was amazed at this story. And actually, you, will, you can read commentaries on what he said about this. He said you can, um, that this is an example of how any of us ever connect to God. It's not on the basis of our merits, on our religiosity, on our intelligence, on our, our experience. It's not the basis of anything. It's on the basis of God's goodness and on the basis of God's promise. That's faith. That's what grace is. We come with no standing. We have no rights. We can't, even, we can't stand on our records. We can't stand on our suffering. I don't care how much you've suffered in life. I have no claim on God saying, oh, because look at what I've all gone through I should get. I can't do that. I can't even approach God on my own unworthiness. I'm so unworthy, God. Look at how unworthy I am. Does that make me worthy? That doesn't make me worthy. I can't approach God on, look at how humble I am. You know, humility is not anything at all. Did you realize that? Humility is not a virtue. It's the absence of any virtuousness. It's basically claiming I have no claims. I have no rights. I'm empty. That's what a beggar does. Do you remember the first words out of Jesus' mouth on the Sermon on the Mount? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Do you know what that really means? Blessed are the spiritual beggars. And yet, she comes with boldness. She does not let the disconnection that she naturally has to God get in the way And she doesn't get discouraged and look at herself and go like, oh, you're right. I shouldn't be here at all, and I'm not going to be. I mean, I'm just so, and walk away. She doesn't look to herself. She looks to Jesus. So Timothy Keller talks about this. He says, you are more wicked than you ever dared believe, but you are also more loved than you ever dared hope. Don't be too proud to accept what the gospel says about your unworthiness. Don't be too despondent to accept what the gospel says about how loved you are. There are, in that way, two ways to fail in this situation, and she does neither. One is that she's too proud and says, well, wait a minute, you can't treat me this way. And the other would be to be too despondent, and you're right, I should just walk away, I'm so unworthy. Neither. Within a lot of cultural Christianity, by the way, I think there's a lot of kind of almost humble brags that go on. That look at how humble I am, look at how unworthy I am, look at how terrible I am. All you're doing is being self-centered when you do that. And that is not a way to get closer to, to God. You're not supposed to look down on yourself. You're not supposed to look at yourself. You look to Jesus. That's what this woman does. John Newton, the author of Amazing Grace, the hymn, right? He wrote a very poignant pastoral letter to his fellow Christians 
um, because this one Christian was just dwelling on just how terrible he was and how sinful he was and how much his heart was filled with inclinations and desires he didn't like. And John Newton wrote back and said, you say you feel overwhelmed with guilt and a sense of unworthiness? Well, indeed you cannot be too aware of the evils inside yourself, but you may be, indeed you are, improperly controlled and affected by them. You say it is hard to understand how a holy God could accept such an awful person as yourself. You then express a low opinion of yourself, which is right, but also too low an opinion of the person, work, and promises of the Redeemer, which is wrong. Got it? Martin Luther said there's two equal and opposite errors when he's talking about this. One is unbelief. I don't need forgiveness. I'm good enough on my own. And the other is despair. I am so terrible. How could God ever forgive me? And this woman does neither. What Martin Luther says she does is this. She catches Christ with his own words, and he is happy to be caught. Why, do we hold, why can we hold on to Jesus? It's because he's promised. He's promised. We don't just believe in an abstract God and hopefully that God is loving in some abstract way or an abstraction of God saying, well, you know, I think he's all wise or all this or all that. We hold on to specific words that God has spoken and he has spoken and we hold on to them and say, that's your promise, God. And he is happy to be caught in those promises. He's delighted when we speak back to him his promises. So that natural disconnection we have that Colossians talked about, Colossians 1.21, continues in 22 where it says, And you once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. He has now, he, God, has now reconciled in his body of, the, of flesh by his death. That Jesus has reconciled you in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before God, before him. So in other words, God has made the connection. Jesus, God's word in the flesh, makes the connection and he faces disconnection. He faces death so that he can reconcile those who were alienated. The cross becomes the connection point where all of God's promises become a yes for you. So to bring this woman into God's family, Jesus actually be cast out. To reconcile her, he became alienated. To redeem us, he is condemned. To embrace, he was excluded. He is that word made flesh. As I mentioned, We'll be baptizing Liam just in a few moments here. And um, why I think this passage even fits? Because Liam's coming with nothing, just like we all do. It's not about his intelligence. It's not about his abilities. It's not about his, his um, will. It's about God and his promises. And as Peter said to the in the book of Acts, this promise is for you and for your children, for those who are far off and those who are near. Be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ in Acts chapter 2. And so we see pure grace for all of us. We're all, we're not, we're not here to bully. We're not here to bargain. 
We're not here to beguile and play games. We're here simply to have a need, to beg, to request, and God loves to be captured in his own promises by all of us. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you this day for your goodness and grace. We thank you, Lord, for this story. Someone so far removed culturally and religiously and morally, Lord, held on to your promise, your word, your judgment, and said, it's okay, I accept it. And you were amazed at her faith, Lord. May we not look to ourselves. Teach us not to bully or beg or, or try to pull one over on you, but instead to just accept, to receive, to be willing, to surrender, to beg, to ask. And it will be given to us, Lord. We lift up to you a number in our congregation now who need your healing touch for Wyatt, who is in pain. We pray, Lord, for these, uh, the passing of these kidney stones and that you would keep him in your care during these days. We lift up to you Bob Beverly hospitalized and pray for your goodness and grace on him and your healing and strength for Joan. We pray for a, um, a, a transition from the hospital soon, Lord. Um, that he can rest more and grow stronger every day. We lift up, Lord, those who have in our congregation faced COVID and uh, pray for your healing on Mark and others that right now are experiencing it. And we pray, Lord, that we'd be a congregation that asks you boldly, that uh, does not, uh, that we just hold on to your promises like this woman. We bring nothing. Lord, we have nothing to claim on you, but you give us the right to be called children of God. You have promised everyone who believes in you will have everlasting life. You forgive us, Lord, our sins. You have reconciled us, though we were alienated and distant from you. You've drawn us near, Lord Jesus. So as you have spoken and as you have promised, we hold on to each one of those promises. And now, Lord, as Liam will be baptized, Lord, as you have commanded and mandated that we are to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them everything you've commanded, Lord Jesus, we bring Liam to this water, Lord, because of your promise, because of who you are, not because of how Liam is, Lord, outside of his need, but because you so desire us, each one of us, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for that. All these things we lift up to you in Jesus' name. Amen.